If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. There's no appetite in Germany to fight another war. People are just as excited about the Munich Agreement in Germany as they are in Britain. And the Nazi press actually has to remind people to celebrate the fact that they won, they got the Sudetenland, because people are so relieved to avoid the conflict. That was Nicholas Stargardt talking about the German experience of the Second World War at a talk he gave at Bristol's M-Shed in February 2017. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're broadcasting a lecture from our World War II day which took place in Bristol's M-Shed Museum in February this year. The speaker was Nicholas Stargardt, a historian at the University of Oxford and the author of the 2015 book The German War, A Nation Under Arms 1939-45. The title of his talk was What Were They Fighting For? German Mentalities in World War II. The reason why I chose this title, um, what did they think they were fighting for, and indeed why I wrote the book was because I realised about 10 years ago as Germans started trying to commemorate the um, 60th anniversary of the end of the war in 2005 that they didn't really know how to frame their own suffering in the war. By 2005, 15 years after reunification, Germans had finally come around to a point of view where they could talk openly not so much about the crimes that they'd committed but also about their own suffering the bombing of civilians in the cities, the flight before the Red Army in the eastern provinces, the mass rape of women by Soviet soldiers at the end of the war. And by 2005, there was so much talk about German suffering that some left-wing historians began to get more and more agitated and worried about what about the victims of the Germans, not just the Germans as victims. And as I thought about this, and I just finished writing a book at that time about children's experience of the Second World War and the Holocaust... I realised that Germans didn't have a way of framing this because nobody was talking about what sense they'd made of their own suffering at the time. Did they think that the mass death they had had to suffer was justified or not? Was it a sacrifice for a national cause? Were they just the victims of a Nazi war of aggression and terror? And I realised one of the reasons why there wasn't an answer to this or why there wasn't a way of framing it was because despite the mountains and mountains of books about the Second World War, German historians had actually failed to write about the war. They'd written about society and its relationship to the Nazi regime. So either people were sort of adoring admirers of Hitler, the sort of faces in the crowds that you see at the Nuremberg party rallies, or they were being held in check by increasing SS terror and a kind of oppressive police state. So it was either the Hitler myth 
or terror and coercion. And yet, these are all about domestic relationships between society and regime. And what got lost here was the third side of this triangle, namely the war itself. And I decided to do a thought experiment. What would happen if we put people's feelings about the regime slightly to one side and put the war in the foreground? And what was quite clear was that most Nazi projects, including, I'm afraid to say, the Holocaust, could be carried out by active minorities. The murder of psychiatric patients was carried out by normal bureaucrats, nurses, doctors, probably a minority even of the medical profession which was involved in it would have actually consented to it and actively wanted the killing of the disabled to take place. Although the Holocaust, with its deportation of Jews across all of occupied Europe, involved almost every form of bureaucracy from local housing administrators in German towns who had to put seals on the flats of Jews after they had been deported, um, right the way through to the planning authorities in Berlin. These are still the activities of minorities. As you'll see, by the time we get to the middle years of the war, the overwhelming majority of German society is mobilized in the war effort. This is not a minority activity. This is not something that could be done with a small number of eager Germans coercing and dragging the rest of the population along. In fact, the worse the war begins to be experienced on the home front, the more that people have to organize themselves and mobilize themselves to carry out civil defense, to evacuate people from the cities, and so on. By the middle years of the war, you not only have 20 million German men out of a population of 80 million under arms in the Wehrmacht and the um, Waffen-SS, but you also have 14 million civilians on the home front in the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization and another 22 million in the Reich Civil Defense Association. Those are two mass organizations which are hugely involved in fighting fires, dealing with bomb damage in the cities and evacuating women and children to the countryside and trying to make sure that they don't get in too much conflict with their hosts when they arrive there. I mean, there's a whole story which is not dissimilar to that of the Blitz in Britain about conflicts between um, people from different parts of Germany speaking different dialects, different religious faiths, city versus countryside, thrown together through wartime evacuations. And they may all have ascribed to the same national cause, but it doesn't mean they like each other at all. So this is all fast-forwarding. Of course, the first and most important thing probably to realize is that when Germans went to war in September 1939, they didn't know any of this. They didn't know what lay ahead of them. And they judged events as they unfolded by what they thought they knew about the previous conflict. And what they thought they knew was why they'd gone to war in 1914, which may be quite different from what you or I think about the causes of the First World War. It's clear that the Second World War was an incredibly brutal war from the very outset. This is a still from film footage taken in besieged Warsaw by an American French photographer, Julien Bryan. Um, and it's a girl who found her sister who'd been digging potatoes in a field in the city and was strafed by a German bomber. This is not the kind of image which Germans saw about their short, successful campaign in Poland. What they saw was the view from the other direction, the exciting view, the exciting footage of Stuckers nosediving towards their targets with cameras loaded in the nose cone. This is a medium sized bomber. This is the kind of bomber that was bombing London in 1940. But from the outset, what they were judging was not the brutality of the war, but whether or not they had a just cause. And in that, they were no different probably from people in Britain. And for Germans, the war did not actually begin on the 1st of September 1939 when they invaded Poland, though that's when we think it began. And for them, The 1st of September was simply a reprisal action. It was simply retaliation to Polish border incursions and Polish aggression against ethnic Germans on Polish territory. It was a sideshow. For them, the war began on the 3rd of September when Britain and France declared war on Germany. And the fact that it was Britain and France and not Germany which declared war turned out to be very convenient for the Nazi regime and allowed them 
to recalibrate a, a view of war which had been there since August 1914, since the outbreak of the First World War. To quote a letter from a village schoolteacher, a veteran of the First World War, a very strange Nazi, you'll see as we progress, Wilm Horsenfeld, who some of you may have, if you've ever seen that film, The Pianist, by um, Roman Polanski about this wonderful Polish-Jewish pianist in the Warsaw Ghetto who goes into hiding on the other side of the wall. The only good-looking German in the film is Wilm Horsenfeld because he's the only decent German. He's the only one who... He's the only, all, all, of the, all of the horrible SS guys have some sort of slight physical tick. Um, I think it's, it's Polanski's... Uh, I'm sure it's not accidental. I'm sure it's his, his way of settling scores because he was a survivor of the Krakow ghetto himself before he became a filmmaker in the States. But the pianist depicts the survival of this Polish-Jewish pianist. And at the very end of the German occupation of Warsaw, he's hidden in an attic above a German command headquarters by Captain Wilm Hosenfeld, who spent most of the war in Warsaw and hid actually a number of other Jews as well and yet was a member of the Nazi party, was also a very devout Catholic. And increasingly, the conflicts between his conscience and the war that he felt he was committed to fighting got worse and worse. And that's what I want to explore very briefly to set up the problem that faces us. On the 1st of September 1939, he found himself across the valley from his village in a girls' secondary school, um, in Hesse, and he wrote a letter to his elder son, Helmut, who's a 17-year-old, had just entered compulsory Reich labor service, sort of prelude to military service. And he wrote as he heard the news of the invasion of Poland. Now the die is cast, the terrible uncertainty is over. We know what we face. In the east, the storm is rising. But even now, he concluded that war could have been avoided. The Führer's proposals about the Polish corridor were acceptable, modest, and would serve to preserve the peace. We know from Ian Kershaw's wonderful biography of Hitler that Hitler only made these proposals in order to have a, what he called an alibi, a pretext to the German people for invading Poland. He never expected these to be accepted, and indeed the Polish government was never handed a written version of them. They were read over the radio. And yet, they made sense to people like Hosenfeld, not because they were warmongers, but because that was what they thought had happened the last time, 25 years earlier, in 1914. And to them, Poland, like Russia in 1914, which invaded East Prussia, of course, was not really the key player. The key player, I'm afraid, was Perfidious Albion, was England. And what they see is, and this is the rest of Hosenfeld's letter, is that the real cause of war was British encirclement. And he was convinced that any other regime would have ended up, quote, in conflict with England. And he was so confident that exactly like in 1914, today fate again reigns over us. The leaders are only characters in a higher hand and must do what he, i.e. God, wills. All domestic ideological political differences have to step back and everyone has to be a German to take a stand for his people. And these words of a family letter almost exactly echo the words that Kaiser William II had proclaimed in August 1914 when he said, I see no parties, I see only Germans. In other words, this is a nation united across the political spectrum in the face <coughs> of external aggression. And what you get, and indeed what William II got in August 1914, was a vote from the Social Democrats, the party which had never voted for any piece of government legislation in its entire political history. He got a vote from all parties for war credits. And getting that vote, and in a sense getting this quiet consent in 1939, was about persuading Germans that they were not the aggressor, but the aggressed, that they were fighting a war of national defense. Very implausible to us. And given the heart-rending conversations which have taken place in this country about what provides just cause for war in the last 20 years, it bears thinking about. Because what you have to think about is, so what are the grounds for deciding that something is defensive rather than aggressive? Germans knew from 1870, 1871 onwards already that who attacks who is not a good way of defining it because you might make a preemptive strike 
and yet still be the country which is politically or strategically on the defensive. So seeing what the military strategy or tactics are and not a particularly good way of, of judging this. And so, you know, as they unwound their Schlieffen plan in 1914 through northern France, they still thought that they were um, the defending country in 1914. The French, of course, didn't see it that way at all. Um, and nor, of course, as German troops violated Belgian neutrality did the British. But in Germany, that didn't, that didn't shake that fundamental position, which was that Russia had invaded East Prussia, they faced a two-front war. What the military strategy was was neither here nor there. The fundamental position was that they were locked in a two-front war and defending themselves. In 1939, the fear of encirclement made most Germans actually quite grateful for their alliance, or at least their tactical alliance with Stalin, over which they could divide Poland, and still convinced that they were in a position of national defense. These kind of pretexts go on. I mean, it's, a very, it's worth rehearsing very briefly because they're so implausible to our ears. In 1940, in the spring before the invasion of France, the Germans, of course, occupy Denmark and Norway. And their pretext is to defend the integrity of their neutrality. It may seem slightly... slightly um, over-generous form of um, protection, sort of mafia-type protection. But, of course, they could quote comments in the House of Commons, including from Churchill, about the British need to mine Norwegian territorial waters in order to prevent the shipment of iron ore down the Norwegian coast from Sweden to Germany, which was indeed what the Royal Navy was planning to do, the Admiralty wanted to do with Churchill, and was indeed a potential violation of Norwegian neutrality. So the Danes capitulated to this German promise of being protected. The Norwegians, of course, didn't, which um, made it slightly harder to sell. And again, in 1941, with the invasion of the Soviet Union, you would have thought, again, a clear-cut case of, of colonial, destructive, uh, genocidal warfare for imperial conquest. I mean, that is what the historiography tells us the purpose of Barbarossa was. And yet, in Germany, that invasion was sold as a preemptive strike with the Red Army poised on the demarcation line to invade Poland and Germany, and only the Führer's great foresight prevented this from happening. And you would be surprised to know that one of the leading West German historians of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, Andreas Hilgruber, when he published his doctoral thesis in the early 50s in West Germany, still repeated this tenet, that the war against the Soviet Union was primarily defensive. He didn't question it. This is what he'd grown up with, and it just seemed common sense. Bolshevism was obviously evil, and therefore everything that the Germans had done in the Soviet Union was somehow justified. And that remained, of course, a Cold War tenet in West Germany. It was very convenient, as West Germany was rearmed in the mid-1950s, to repeat anti-communist propaganda. And, of course, to a lot of West Germans, they did kind of turn to the Americans, British, say, didn't we tell you this? You've caught on a bit late. And so there is a sense of some of these arguments never going away until those generations dropped away, which is probably why, when I approached this topic, there was such a vacuum. There wasn't a clear-cut way of seeing these. So... If the first point is that it was possible in 1939 to believe that you were repeating a war of national defence, which you had tried to wage in 1914, this didn't, of course, conceal the fact that this was an extremely brutal war. It wasn't just the conquest of Poland which was brutal. Mass executions followed it, and first by the Wehrmacht in reprisal for what they thought were attacks on German soldiers. They burnt down whole villages. They executed all of the inhabitants the scale of reprisal far exceeding what they'd done in France and Belgium in 1914, 1915. And the period immediately after the conquest saw even greater violence committed, of course, by the police and the SS as they started to wipe out not only sections of Poland's Jewish population, but also the entire former intelligentsia and people who could provide a ruling class. And this was clear and planned action. And Wilm Horsenfeld, who's still in Poland and would remain posted in Poland for the rest of the war, 
was immediately shocked by this. And within two months of the outbreak of the war, in early November 1939, he wrote another letter home, this time to his wife, saying, this isn't about retaliation. He's talking about these mass executions. It looks as if one wanted to exterminate the intelligentsia following the Russian example. Who would have thought that a government which has immortal hatred of Bolshevism and persecutes it so utterly at home would do this? How glad I was to be a soldier, but today I would like to tear the field grey uniform into pieces. Of course, he didn't do this. Are we to hold the shield behind which these crimes against humanity can occur? And this was a question which would continue to plague him throughout the war. By the summer of 1942, he's posted in the Warsaw Garrison and is an immediate spectator on the mass deportations of the Jewish population to Treblinka and quite quickly learns the name of the camp and what the scale of annihilation is. And he writes heart-rending letters about his sense of moral failure and shame. And what you can see is that somebody who feels isolated like this turns their conscience inwards to their diary and letters and has to talk about it in private because although he's not terribly... He's not very conspiratorial because he doesn't think he's an opponent of the Nazi regime. He's actually a member of the Nazi party. So he doesn't really watch his mouth. He does sound off to people. But he feels this gnawing sense of shame. And yet, when he finally takes a step to start hiding Jews, it's a spontaneous action, and I think in many ways a private action. His public sense of duty is still about holding the line and defending the Reich. And that is his duty as a soldier. He doesn't tear this field grey uniform to pieces. And indeed, he writes to his son, Helmut, and his younger son, Detlef, who's also serving by this point, to say in the autumn of uh, 1942, beginning of 1943, isn't it wonderful that the front is holding despite the defeats, despite the bombing, and despite the retreat on the Eastern Front? We are holding the line. There's no sign of mutiny. There's no sign of the disintegration which ended the German war effort in 1918. And the second half of the war for First World War veterans like Hosenfeld is often about this fear of disintegration, this fear of repeating 1918. These are the two people I wanted you to see. So that is Wilm Hosenfeld. He really is quite a kind of smart, middle-aged German officer. And this is Helmut, whom he wrote the first letter to in August 1939. You have to imagine him two or three years older by the time he's writing to him in 1942. What, of course, Germans had to deal with was the fact that quite quickly they realised they were not fighting a war in the same kind as they had in the First World War. The kinds of racial persecution which Jews had been subjected to um, from 1935, from the Nuremberg race laws onwards and through Kristallnacht, were very quickly inflicted on Slavs brought to work in German villages and towns. And what you're seeing here is a head-shaving ritual. So you, the woman facing you, tied to the pillory, literally pillory post, has had her head shaven, and um, she's bearing a placard saying, I am a race defiler. And the Polish supposed lover is tied to the other side of the pillory. And this is in Thuringia. This is in Lutheran heartland of Germany, in which there is really no gap between what Lutheran pastors would say and what local Nazi officials would say. And these shaming rituals are terribly popular. In the book, you'll see a much closer up photo where the words are legible, but from the other side of the pillory where you can see him rather than her. What I wanted you to see here is the, are the faces in the crowd, that there are very, very many women and there are also very many children in attendance. This is a kind of popular festival. It has a carnivalesque quality and it will end with his execution. It will end almost certainly with him being publicly hanged. And this is a form of institutionalized violence, which was meant to be popular, which misplays in different parts of Germany. In Catholic areas, where Poles appear not as Slavic subhumans, but as co-religionists, as fellow Catholics, they often provide prompt, very divided responses. And people say, you know, why are we doing this? What happened when our men had Polish lovers in occupied Poland, you know, isn't this unfair on, you know, to German women? So that you start having arguments about gender equality. 
and also about medievalism. You know, are we going to go back to the Middle Ages and start introducing thumbscrews? People start saying this in public. And Hitler decides after a few months of these kind of events that it's better not to carry on with them because if the responses in some areas are overly enthusiastic, in areas of Thuringia, the main problem is crowd control because too many people want to come. And in Catholic areas, it's quite divided. They, they actually sweep it behind closed doors. They still execute the um, Polish men, but they start doing it in the privacy of concentration camps or prisons rather than in public squares or clearings in woodland. And yet this continuing character of Nazi violence and the desire to create popular spectacle, it's been compared by some historians to (coughs) the spectacle of lynchings in the southern American states, which of course continued into the 20s and 1930s. They were almost contemporaneous with these kind of spectacles. And they keep on doing this, of course, after 1941, when they have Soviet forced laborers in German cities and Soviet prisoners of war in um, running munitions factories, running public transport and various things. And of course, by the campaign in the Soviet Union, the scale of brutality goes through the roof and you have these random executions of anybody suspected of partisan activity. This is Army Group Center. This is the spearhead of the German assault on Moscow in the autumn of 1941. These are people from armored tank units. And what's striking about the photograph is how many soldiers are photographing it, is the presence of their own cameras, these compact Leicas, the first 35mm compact cameras, and which is, of course, against all military regulations. They're not meant to photograph this kind of stuff, but nobody actually stops them. And these photographs, before they're printed in the form that we see them, have been sent back to Germany in little aluminium canisters of rolled-up film to family members with letters or packets and taken to local pharmacy to be developed and printed and sent back. So in other words, a photograph of this kind found by Soviet captors on dead or captured German soldiers, which is where most of these photographs come from, alongside photographs of their fiancés, children, and loved ones. It's an odd series of things to carry in your uniform pocket. These photographs have not stayed on the Eastern Front where they were taken. They've traveled all the way around the home front and through very many hands before they came back there. And of course, these things don't not remain secret. And in some ways, German propaganda also plays its part. This photograph is published in a German illustrated weekly during the 1941 campaign. And it's made very clear that these Soviet female soldiers are a perversion of the gender order, that this is what they're fighting against, that, you know, German men are out there on the front protecting German womanhood at home and domesticity and some correct sense of the family against these perversions of (laughs) communism. And it's made quite clear that these women will be executed almost certainly out of hand. What becomes very clear and cannot be hidden is that the three million Red Army soldiers captured in the summer and autumn of 1941, most of them have starved to death by the end of that year. I cut the following photograph because it's just too ghastly, which is the same sort of group of prisoners a year or so later in the concentration camp of Mannhausen, where you could see how terribly, terribly thin they are. But of course, even the marking of Jews with the yellow star in the autumn of 1941 and their deportation in the following months were not secrets. These were public events and were photographed, in this case, the small town of Kitzingen as they are marched through the streets of the centre of the town in daylight um, to the railway station. And people go afterwards to buy the goods at auction. So I think I mentioned earlier the sealing up of houses by municipal officials, sealing up of apartments. Part of it is to stop property being looted so it can be properly auctioned off. But of course, if you buy property, you you hope that the original owners aren't going to come back and claim it. And by... The summer of 1942, when the Holocaust is at its height, Germany is absolutely awash with rumours about the murder of the Jews. The rumours of death camps are slow to spread. What we think of the centre of the final solution, the death camps in Poland, the crematoria, are a better kept secret which leaks out much more slowly. It takes till 43, sometimes till 44 before people hear about it. And there are rumours about 
it's piecemeal. It's what you find is that the inaccurate rumors are actually a very good guide to what people don't know and are trying to make sense of. So there are rumors about gassing trains, about mass elocution in um, special <laughs> facilities. They're very clear that people are being burnt because burning corpses is hard to conceal. But they don't really know how people are dying, but they do know that they're dying. But what isn't a secret at all is that accompanying that photograph of the suspected partisan being hanged is there are very, very many photographs of mass shooting sites on the Eastern Front. And you have to think that between one and two million of the Jews killed in the final solution are not killed through starvation in ghettos or through death camps, but are actually shot on the Eastern Front in pits. These are not secrets. And it's very clear by 42, through the rumours circulating in German society, that people are aware of this. But it doesn't burst into the open and form the topic of public conversation for another year. And the trigger for that is something else. It's the British bombing of German cities. I did hear the word bomber command mentioned in the last lecture, but bomber command does not really have the capacity to initiate a campaign of mass bombing, which is effective, until the spring of 1943. And they start by bombing the industrial cities of the Ruhr, which is very sensible. It's the heartland of German industry. It's also relatively easy to reach because it's in the western side of Germany and you can simply follow the line of the River Rhine at night as a kind of glittering strip of water. So the fact that Cologne was chosen as the first <coughs> emblematic attack, the Thousand Bomber Raid of May 1942, to show what Bomber Command could do if it was given the resources was not an accident. Cologne was one of the easiest cities in Germany to find and would be flown over by almost every attack on anywhere else. So the people in Cologne got used to having disrupted sleep endlessly, whether or not they were being bombed themselves. But the most dramatic and, in the European theatre of war, the most destructive bombing of any city were the raids on Hamburg, which began on the 25th of July 1943 and went on until the early hours of the 2nd of August, 43. And during that week of bombing, half the city was destroyed, mainly the inner city, the old half-timbered Hanseatic trading city and the working-class districts around the port. Of its population of 1.2 million, 800,000 people fled and 34,000 were killed. The accurate numbers, of course, not known because the neither the British nor the German authorities would have had an interest in publicising. The British didn't know, and the Germans didn't want to say. And in fact, they made a point of doing very careful police counts of the dead after each set of raids, but of not publicising the numbers for fear of demoralising their own population. So what they tended to do was to talk about the destruction of cultural monuments, including churches. But the dramatic scale of the bombing led people to suspect that the loss of life was even greater. So far from containing rumour, it in fact exploded it. And well-connected people were writing letters and indeed the neutral press in Sweden and Switzerland was publishing numbers which were talking about one or 200,000 people having been killed in this set of air raids. And what it prompted was a very strange kind of public conversation which carried on all across Germany and took the form of what a Hamburg patrician wrote in a circular letter to his siblings. The common people, the middle classes and the rest of the population make repeated remarks in closed circles and also in larger gatherings that the raids count as retaliation for our treatment of the Jews. And what they're doing is equating the scale of allied air raids with what they already know has been done to Europe's Jewish population. There's a very complicated thing to unpick. Because on the one hand, it becomes an open declaration of culpability and of guilt, an almost involuntary one, where people admit for the first time that all this random individual tales of mass killing sites is actually a collective event, what we did to the Jews. So, you know, where rumours circulated in 1942 and you could know but not know, you could know without taking a responsibility for something because nobody had asked you to take responsibility for it. In 1943, once people put this in the public domain, once they talk to each other in public, to people they don't know on the street about these things, they're accepting some kind of responsibility 
And as this spreads to parts of Germany which hadn't been bombed at all, Bavarian towns like Rothenburg, Obder, Tauber, which have accepted a lot of refugees from bombed cities but haven't been bombed, they tend to disbelieve the exaggerated stories that the refugees tell them about their own suffering, but they do repeat this, this same thing. And what they say is, if only we had not treated the Jews so badly, then this would not be happening to us. And that's the really crucial thing. I'm not a grammarian, but I do know that's a subjunctive. And it's a subjunctive because it's an impossible wish. If we had not done this, then that would not be happening to us. In other words, it's about de-escalating the war, turning the clock back, taking yourself back to a situation where you had other choices prior to both kinds of escalation. The equation of the bombing and the Holocaust partly comes from Goebbels' own propaganda. After Stalingrad, the massive defeat of the beginning of 1943, he began to allow a trickle of information to appear in the media which made it clear people could only understand it if they kind of made sense of what they knew. So they would have media reports about whether the whether German Axis allies were solving their Jewish question fully, which assumed you knew that Germany had, or whether the gypsy question should be solved in the same way as the Jewish question. And there would be this sort of trickle of things which were echoed then by a propaganda about the Allied bombing, that this was a Jewish attempt to exterminate the German people, that the Jewish lobby in London and Washington was directing the Allied air raids against German civilians in an attempt to annihilate the entire civilian population. And so putting these things together wasn't difficult. And Goebbels' bet in this, we have his diary record for it, was that if a population knows it's got its back to the wall, if it has, knows that it has burnt its own boats, then it has nowhere to, to retreat to and will fight more fanatically. Fanatical is always a good Nazi term. And in this he miscalculates, because this conversation is almost the reverse. It's, it's played through the lens of Nazi propaganda. It's played through an acceptance that the Allied air attacks are a breach of any ethical norms, any ethical limits on how you wage war, which is, I think, one of the reasons why they do equate them, do make sense of them alongside the Holocaust, that they recognise both as being some fundamental breach of the ethics of war. But they don't take this at that moment as something to be proud of or something to motivate themselves, but quite the reverse. They're trying to find a way out. And the 25th of July, the time of these Hamburg raids, is also the day on which Mussolini is overthrown in Italy. And people put these two events together very quickly. And they speak in public about the possibilities of finding a separate peace with the British and Americans by changing their own regime. And people say, well, you know, fascism lasted 20 years. Our government's only been there for 10 and they, there is this extraordinary period through August to early September when Germans across town squares, market squares, railway trains talk about regime change. They don't do anything about it, but nor, does, nor do the Nazi authorities. The Gestapo does not start arresting people. The SS does not crack down. In fact, Himmler instructs them to step backwards because the Nazi regime is itself terrified about what will happen to morale if these Allied air raids continue. They don't know themselves. And, you know, just as much as the British, they've gone into the Second World War believing that strategic bombing of civilian populations could be a game-changer, could be something which makes for massive civilian unrest and the fall of regimes. And so neither side know what the outcome will be at this moment. And this talk doesn't die down until the Wehrmacht occupies the Italian peninsula in September 1943. So it goes on for about five or six weeks. And only then in the autumn does the regime start to symbolically punish a handful of people for saying the kinds of things which they know everybody's been talking about for the last few weeks. It's just a way of saying, okay, guys, don't go here anymore. But it can't go away. Once you've taken these things out of a box, you can't really put them back in again. And the next time that anti-Semitism is brought up on the propaganda schedules, it plays out differently. In the spring of 1944, 
so six months later. The Wehrmacht occupies the Hungarian capital of Budapest and Jews are herded into a ghetto. For the rest of Europe, the question is what will happen to the Jews? In Germany, the question is, my God, they did it. They did something we should have done. What they talk about is not what will happen to the Jews, but the fact that Budapest will now be safe from Allied air attack because they have Jews there in the city as human shields. And so there's still this equation of the air raids being a particularly Jewish-inspired form of terror bombing. And terror and bombing and Jewish terror bombing are equated in German minds. And they've, it's very interesting, they're not reducible to any other form of attack. So when Goebbels talks about the dam raids, the, the dam buster raids on the Ruhr reservoirs as being Jewish terror bombing, even in the Ruhr, where a lot of people lost their lives in the floodwaters, people reject this and say, what's that got to do with Jews or terror? This is a military strategic target. This is perfectly sensible. We should have been doing the same thing in Britain. You know, if our military men didn't know how to do this, then they ought to get their educational costs refunded. <laughs> and there's this sort of, what you're getting is not, is not a population which is imprinted by whatever Nazi propaganda churns out, but a kind of dialogue where Goebbels and the propagandists don't really know what will work or how people will take up what they hand them. And some things work and other things don't. And what they're dealing with is a society which is saturated by pre-Nazi politics, pre-Nazi cultural values, and a huge spectrum of public opinion. So the Wilm Horsenfelds of this world, who are formed in the First World War in the 1920s, and have to be somehow brought to make sense of things which have become genocidal. And by the time the Americans occupy the first city in the Reich, Aachen, in the autumn of 1944, they find the psychological war experts who go in in October 44 immediately report that they find a population which expects to be punished for what they've done to the Jews. So the sense of collective culpability doesn't go away, but it's somehow also linked to a sense of German victimhood. What I want to talk about very briefly, this is what happens five months after the bombing of Hamburg. They commemorate the war dead. And the Protestant churches hold a joint service in a single unbombed church. And they get 91 people to turn out. And everybody else who wants to participate goes to the main square where the party holds its commemoration. And is very careful to choreograph this, not in terms of fanatical resistance, but about rebuilding and about rebuilding and holding out. And the, as it were, the low-key virtues of going on. And... By that point, most of the city's population has actually returned. So the population's back up to 800,000, but many of them are living in these kinds of cellar dwellings where Victor Galanx and his photographer found people in Hamburg in 1947, still living three families in one set of basements. And with it goes this huge full-scale mobilization of the German civilian population. So remember the photographs of the Soviet women who were going to be executed because they were perverting the gender order by being in uniform? Well, by autumn of 44, German women are manning these huge anti-aircraft searchlights and actually carrying sidearms. What I want to talk about very briefly are the familial private virtues, what it is that gets people through all of this. And I want to talk about the way in which the sense that this is being a second war within a generation actually communicates within the family. And what you have is this very strong sense, I think, of intergenerational responsibility. So underneath all of this noise about who attacks whom and whether our war is justified, whether Britain is encircling us or not, I think is a much more profound sense of repetition and of, of the fear of failure. Because the first lesson of the First World War, which is very clear through the 20s and 30s, is do not go to war again. And it's very clear through the pre-Second World War crises that there's no appetite in Germany to fight another war. People are just as excited about the Munich Agreement in Germany as they are in Britain. And the Nazi press actually has to remind people to celebrate the fact that they won. They got the Sudetenland because people are so relieved to avoid the conflict. The second lesson of the First World War was that if you are in a war, you can't afford to lose it. You can't afford for 1918 to be the repeat. You can't afford to be defeated again. And this becomes a generational pledge. 
It's the fear that the children have to do what the fathers failed to do. And you have this repeated in family letters of various kinds through the Second World War, none more heartrendingly than by another Catholic primary school teacher who's horrified by the atrocities in the Soviet Union in the autumn of 41. He's in one of these tank divisions that you saw them photographing the execution. And he sees the burning down of villages. He sees the execution of Soviet POWs. He sees these horrendous anti-partisan actions. He doesn't see the murder of the Jews, but he doesn't really need to, to know that they're doing something which is brutal and inhumane. And he asks himself the question, you know, does that mean that we are equal to the Bolsheviks? And asks himself whether he does have anything to fight for. And he says, no, absolutely. It's utterly important that this war ends now. Otherwise, and he has a two-year-old son called Rainer, otherwise there will be yet another war for Rainer's generation. And he then concludes the letter to his wife saying, no, 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 much better that I should go through all of the hells that I'm going through here than that Rainer should ever have to go where I am now. And he is killed at the front in the next couple of months. And it's that sense, I think, of intergenerational responsibility which people project onto the next generation. They imagine they're not only caught in the cycle of repetition of the parental generation, their own generation, but that if they fail, this repetition will happen yet again. And that there'll be a third war and a third generation will have to go through this. And what's interesting is that these fundamental patriotic virtues, which are familial, are deeply rooted and are sustained through family letters, through little parcels of food and gifts from the front, are also wrapped up with love stories. There's another of these father-son duos. There's a carpenter from Thuringia who, again, sees his entire war effort. Because he's a carpenter, he's on a building battalion, so his, his photo album is about the destroyed bridges, which his unit then helps rebuild. So this is outside Kiev. But what I want to bring you to finally is the way in which this plays through in the positive, the most positive things that people can formulate, which is love. The German war effort, of course, like any other total war effort, is largely about civilians in uniform. So people both think that they're living through heroic times and they think it's a waste of time. And they're promising each other to make up for the time that they've lost in their personal lives afterwards. And there are endless repetitions of this People actually say real time will happen then, will happen later, afterwards. There's a couple who start courting in the pre-war years. He's the farmer's son and she is a trainee florist and they're kind of smooching in her grandfather's garden. Uh, They don't think her parents know, of course. (laughs) And of course what happens is the outbreak of the war simply accelerates the relationship. So the first and most successful programme designed for the war is a request concert of music, light comedy sketches, musical requests, bits of poetry, everything from classical theatre to kind of pop songs, all of which has to be performed live in a Berlin radio studios, and all the artists have to give their services for free. And it's about dedicating messages to and from the front and the home front. And Irina, who we saw in her grandfather's garden, describes how the two or three weekly shows of this absolutely grip her and she wants to crawl into the speaker of her radio set so that she doesn't miss anything. And she keeps waiting to hear his name read out. He's safely posted to the Western Front. He's in the quiet zone of the war. And so, in fact, what they do is, you know, life mimics art and they accelerate their own engagement and get married just before Christmas 1939. He has bits of leaves, so she manages to have two children during the war. He goes through a tour of duty on the Eastern Front. These are his photographs of Soviet war dead before he lands back in the south of France, sunning himself and able to read Goebbels's weekly newspaper, Das Reich. And he's a sort of Schweikian character. He's smart enough never to allow himself to be promoted to officer rank because he doesn't really want to be killed. But he still invests completely in the war effort and in February 1945, Irena, who is still a market gardener and florist, most most unpolitical of women, is writing to him, you know, do you think that the front will hold? I'm still worried that there will be traitors in the officer corps 
who will try to replicate the bomb plot of July 1944, do you think Himmler will be observant enough? In other words, will he hold our security? And, and when you see an unpolitical woman like Irena Gürking putting all of her future familial happiness and investment in this war effort going on and holding, you know that only complete military defeat can break that. Thank you very much. That was Nicholas Stargardt. His book, The German War, A Nation Under Arms, 1939-45, is now available in a paperback edition published by Vintage. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meanwhile, our next live events are going to be the History Weekend Festivals, taking place in October and November in Winchester and York, respectively. Speakers include the likes of Roy Hattersley, Tracy Borman, Chris Skidmore and Helen Castor. And tickets are selling fast. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's pretty much it for today, but please do listen in on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. <laughs>